If we follow the news closely, now today, not only the whole world continues to follow the war in Ukraine, but meanwhile, let's pay attention also to the modern conflict in the nation of Israel. On one hand, many people are still asked the question, we're in the year of 2023, how should we understand the purpose of international crises? So in other words, do we always believe that today war is the only solution to stability? And also on the other hand, how about the role of America? Does that mean America today will continue to be the police of the world? Well, these questions are critical. And meanwhile, it's also worth discussing what role does American play when we look at the international crisis at this moment. Well, according to U.S. sitting President Joe Biden, that today America is still the hope and supposed to be the role model for democracy. But internally speaking, politically speaking, political polarization and also economic uncertainty, and most importantly, 2024 presidential election, it's not just the election matters to the American citizens today, but most importantly, the whole world is still watching and hoping America continue to be the champion for democracy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak our distinguished speaker today, which is Professor Victor David Henson. And Professor Henson is the professor from Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Well, Professor Henson, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me. Well, Professor, again, as we mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because not only you're such a knowledgeable person on international crisis, but also this amazing book that you wrote, which is entitled The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites tribalism and globalization are destroying the idea of America. Now, before we talk about the war in Israel and also the war in Ukraine, but let's talk about the concept of globalization. You know, again, before pandemic or pre-pandemic, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone actually celebrated globalization. So which means we're looking at better relationship in terms of economic standpoint. And also we're looking at this political shakeup but one thing we have to ask, but in your book, and also the title of the book is globalization today are actually bringing more negativity and also pointing out the negative, uh, we'll say, aspects or the weaknesses of America. Why do you think today that more people still believe the power of globalization instead of realizing that globalization should be reduced? Your thoughts? Well, globalization is sort of a synonym for the westernization or I should say the systemization of Westernism. And by that, I mean, originally it was the idea that we were all going to have similar cell phones and we could mm. communicate with each other. We would have international internet. We would have international uh, digital movies. We would have downloading. We would have, everybody would wear jeans no matter where they are, t-shirts. It was an informality. It was going to unite all of us mm. in shared material, wants and tastes. And then as we evolved into the 21st century, people said, well, we want to systematize the political order. The problem was is that there's roughly 180 democratic states in the world and only half of them are consensual or democratic. I mean, the other half are not consensual. Mm -hmm. And so the effort in Davos and in Europe and the United States, some Asian countries among elites 
was that we're going to dumb down the idea of politics so it's it's presentable or acceptable to all the nations, which means if you're communist China or autocratic Russia or corrupt Mexico, we're not going to judge you as any different because just as you have a cell phone and we have a cell phone and you wear Levi's and we wear Levi's, we're not going to pass judgment. And ultimately that required a surrender of sovereignty. Mm. So if you're a soldier in the United States Army fighting in the Taliban in Afghanistan, the globalists will say you're subject to the International Criminal Court, but they won't ask who's on the international. If you're worried about racism in your country or my country, you call in the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, and you're not supposed to say, well, wait a minute, North Korea and Iran are on that. Mm. And so it was a process over content. And when it left the technological, scientific, cultural aspect of music and art and technology, and it went into politics uh, and tried to destroy, or I, I should say water down or dumb down sovereignty and political systems uh, to their lowest common denominator, that's when people said no. And there's there's been a widespread Brexit re, uh, revolt. There's been a revolt here, the so-called Trump MAGA revolt. Mm. And I think there's been, there's going, there's a revolt growing in also some Asian countries, Australia as well. Professor, again, I want to continue our conversation. Now, again, going back to the concept. Now, people are very concerned today because of the presence of China, the presence of Russia. And also, as you mentioned before, in the Middle East, and we have Iran, and we have any other countries. Now, how much do you think that today, because of this political ambition, and also this uh, war in Ukraine, and meanwhile, we're looking at the nuclear weapon development in North Korea and in, in Iran, putting everything together, that's why it actually elevates the status of America instead of making America look so fearful. Because again, when I travel on the road and talking to people around the world, that I will have to say, this again, as we mentioned before, they still believe America is the champion of democracy. But meanwhile, because of those countries' political ambition or what we call this economic ambition, it's actually, it, it does not reduced America's role, it elevates America's role on the international stage. How much would you agree with that? Somewhat. I think there's a, a disease that the West creates. It's a good disease, but it's when you combine constitutional government with free market capitalism, you create a huge amount of affluence and leisure. And that requires some self-control of the appetites or uh, religion or community or shame culture to, to not do what you have the wherewithal and the freedom to do. Mm. And what I mean by that is listen, eat pizza all day and you're on sub subsidies in your apartment and listen to rap music, for example. Mm. But that's an extreme idea. But what I'm getting at is that in our Western systems, there was a laxity, a complacence. And in that vacuum, Russia, China especially, some of the illiberal regimes, North Korea, they filled that vacuum through illiberal, totalitarian, militaristic Iran, et cetera. And the West was sort of like lotus eaters. They said, well, maybe we should have a Iran deal with Tehran. They won't really be that bad. Maybe we'll have reset with Putin. 
Uh, maybe he's China, communist China is a strategic partner. Mm. So there are all these naivetes. And I think what's happened, they saw that those countries and that bloc interpreted our magnanimity as weakness to be exploited, given their natures, rather than to be kindness, to be reciprocated in kind. Mm. And that shook up the West. The Afghanistan thing has shaken up the West. So is the invasion of Ukraine. So is the Gaza. And I think now Western countries are saying, you know what? We haven't reached the end of history. We're not in la-la land and we're not in utopia. You, the, the fundamentals of a, any country are you have to have a secure, definable border for a private space for your people. You need a strong deterrent military. You need a vibrant free market economy. And if you don't have that, you're going to be vulnerable to these challenges. That's a good thing. And the other thing I think that's happened, everybody now is scared of these, of Iran getting the bomb or what Russia is doing to Ukraine or what China threatens to do to Taiwan. But I think there's a growing awareness that if you look at the EU-NATO countries mm. in terms of G GDP and wherewithal, and you look at the United States in terms of GDP and military wherewithal, and you factor into that Australia, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, by any historical measure of economic clout, cultural influence, and nuclear weapons, and conventional defenses, and technology, the westernized countries are far superior, but they're mm -hmm. fragmented, and they're not it's not their rote, it's not their tendency to be alarmist or to be militaristic. But now they're like a proverbial dragon that's waking up slowly, and they're finding out that they have enormous amounts of power. Mm. And I think if they can unify and codify their responsibilities and allot them and sort them out, they will have a very strong economic, financial, and military deterrent to Russia, Ch China, North Korea, Iran, mm. and other countries like that. So I'm kind of, I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm. And how about the concept of tribalism? Again, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, a couple years ago, I came across another book which actually defined of the word tribalism. And so in other words, we're yes. looking at unification because people are tribalism. So in other words, we're looking for groups. I mean, socially speaking, or especially from this psychological standpoint, we are more likely to behave better and we're more likely to have this accountability when we're in groups. But today, not only the tribalism is happening socially, but also politically and ex economically speaking as well. Again, going back to uh, your book, Professor, in your book, you mentioned the word tribalism and also uh, uh, you used the concept uh, such as, you know, tribalism and versus minorities and, you know, etc. So what, I guess, put in a simple way, what is the issue with tribalism today? So in other words, don't you think that unification could actually bring something positive especially politically speaking. So in other words, we put smart people together and we put all the, uh, 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 what we say, the positivity or the knowledgeable elites together, that could actually solve a lot of uh, potential threats or can really avoid a lot of potential dangers. What, what are the drawbacks of that? 
there's not a lot of drawbacks, but you have to understand that that's a Western phenomenon. Mm. In other words, if I go to Taiwan and it's Western democracy and I do not look like Taiwanese, I still have a chance probably to be a Taiwanese participant. If I go to communist China, that's a blood and soil country. Mm. And so is Russia and so is Iran. And so are most countries in the world. That is, people feel only comfortable with those that share their superficial appearance. Mm -hmm. It's a very radical idea. And I think the United States was, because of its peculiar nature and settlement and its declaration of independence and constitution, it never, there's not one word in the constitution or the declaration that says white. Mm -hmm. It says humans, freedom. Mm -hmm all men, all men. And maybe the 95% of white people who founded the country were naive, but I would like to think they knew that the logical trajectory of that statement eventually, given the nature of the population of the world, would include anybody who shared their values. And so what we have been very beneficial in the United States, lesser degree Europeans, they don't see, they have a class system that we that kind of is very hard to break through. And they've had a, a much longer history of blood and soil chauvinism, but nevertheless, they're Western. And what I'm trying to get at is when you have people that come in and now 30% of the population of the United States does not look like the founders, mm. but under our, under our system, if you come from Gaza and you become a U.S. citizen, almost automatically, you have the same rights and responsibilities as I do that have been here for six generations in the same house. Mm. And that's how our system works. But it's predicated on one caveat, that the immigrant from Taiwan, the immigrant from the Middle East, wherever they are, this diverse group that immigrates to the United States has to do one thing. They have to see their own customs and culture in a subordinate role. That mm. is, they say to us, the population that's here, I want to bring an enrichment of literature, music, art, food, fashion, work ethic, all the things that my country does well. Mm. And maybe you don't like it or maybe you're not, but we're going to throw it into this, this soup and everybody's going to do that. And then you, when you wake up in an American city, you can have Mexican food or Chinese food, or you can see somebody walking with a veil or somebody with a yarmulke. Mm. It's just diverse. However, that won't that will descend into tribal chauvinism which is the natural order of things mm. unless people understand that that's subordinate and they they enter into a brutal bargain that they get to keep at home their indigenous culture or they're on the periphery but on the core free speech constitutional government rights of women rights of minorities uh, free market capitalism independent judiciary Bill of Rights, all of that core, they can't tamper with, mm. cannot tamper with it. Mm. So you can't go out with a bullhorn in Manhattan and say, I'm going to go kill a bunch of Jews because I'm from the Middle East and I'm going to attack. You can't do that. Mm. We don't have any problem with your dress, your flag, your free speech, but you don't tamper with that constitutional core. But when you put you reverse that. So somebody says, I'm not African-American, I'm, I'm black, or mm. I'm not, I'm not 
Mexican-American, I'm Latino or La Raza, and they say that I don't have to follow the core, even if they do follow it, and I'm separate, then that's like nuclear proliferation. That sets off a tribal proliferation. And in this country, we've done this now for 60 years where we've said your race is essential to defining your persona rather than incidental. And what I'm worried about is people are saying white supremacy, white rage, white white rage, white privilege, and they just collectivize millions of people, 270 million people without an individual introspection. And I don't think they really want to do that in any society where that group is the major, the majority of population. So what it's, for the first time in my life, I see working class whites who have no privilege. They have no high school diploma. They're not, they're very poor, nobody in their college. And they say to me, I walk into a store and they'll say, hello. I said, do I know you? Mm. No, I just wanted to say hi. Mm. And what they're, what they're conveying to me is you and I have a, a tie now based on our shares because everybody else is doing it and they're threatening us. And for my survival, I'm going to do with the Latinos, the gays, the blacks, the Asians. I'm going to do with that. I'm going to identify as white. Mm. And that's always been a taboo because we were the majority founding population and we had all the power by sheer numbers. But if you continue down that tribal road, we're gonna end up like something in fifth century Rome where you had, everybody had loyalties to anything other than the central Roman government. Mm. And so tribalism is, can enrich a multiracial society as long as it doesn't descend in multiculturalism where you, where you try to substitute your entire culture for the political and economic, you know, atoms of the society. Mm. If you do that, you're going to unwind it and everybody is going to go tribal for their own survival. Mm. Professor Hansen, I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about the war in Israel right now. Yes. Now, despite all the reports from the mainstream media and also we're looking at this conflict from any aspects, Mainly, or should I say recently, a lot of international experts start to say that Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel, should shoulder much greater responsibilities because of what's happened. Again, despite that what Hamas did you know, to the uh, Israelis, and also despite that, again, the casualties numbers we're looking at today, how much do you think that Benjamin Netanyahu this person alone should shoulder the major responsibility because of the intelligence failure or because that he failed to understand something so critical, even though he was warned before. But meanwhile, we have heard the reaction from Joe Biden as well, just to say America is with Israel, but that's yeah. still rather debatable, right? So I want to hear your thoughts. Well, there's a rule that the ruler takes responsibility for a disaster. So Franklin Roosevelt was blamed for Pearl Harbor mm. because we knew we had information that was coming. For a while, George W. Bush was blamed for 9-11 because there were obvious clues. Joe Biden was told that the Taliban would take over unless he sent troops or he changed the strategy. Mm. He was told that. Mm. Now, the degree to which the, the leader is held permanent responsibility for an intelligence collapse depends on what happens in the war. 
So Franklin Roosevelt today is considered a great leader of World War II because he got up in front of the country, said, day of infamy, we're declaring war in Japan, and I'm going to, and he won the war. George W. Bush is considered, nobody says today that it was his fault because 9-11, because he got rid of the Taliban. He went, his problem is they're assessing the ultimate verdict on Iraq, mm. let's say. But it's not that they're blaming him for 9-11. I think Joe Biden will be blamed for the Taliban. Mm. So what I'm getting at with Netanyahu, there was a systemic intelligence collapse. Mm. The degree to which he will be held responsible for the results, which is all that matters, is will he be able to destroy Hamas? Will he be able to get some of the hostages back? Will he able be able to deter Iran? And will he be able to either prevent Hezbollah from invading or if they do invade, make them pay a high price? Mm -hmm. If he can do all of that, then he will be considered a successful wartime leader. The other thing to remember is that there was a complacency in Israel. When I went, I've been over there the last two summers and many times before. And when I talk to Israelis in government and in business, this is what I got. Never have we been wealthier. Mm. We are now independent in natural gas. We have all the oil we need. We have four huge desalinization plants. We're so magnanimous, we're giving free water to the Palestinians. We have gotten over our suspicion of Hamas, so we're allowing 20,000 Gazans to come in to southern Israel and work, and they get five times the wages they would in Gaza, and they support another 150 people. And the Iran deal that was so threatening is now off the books. We don't have to worry about it. And what we are delighted about is the resumption of the Abraham Accords mm. and Saudi Arabia. And so, and then there was a big divisive fight that you see in Western countries over uh, the judicial reforms proposed by the Netanyahu government. And so what you wanted to do as a foreigner is shake them mm. and say, you have blinkers on. Do you really believe that you have the margin of error that a Germany or a France or Italy or the United States or Japan does to have divisive for, uh, domestic disputes where a million people get the streets or people don't report to the military. You don't. You're in a sea of enemies. Or do you really, really, really believe that your success and your freedom and your affluence makes your neighbors emulate you and want to be like you? Or do you believe that they're jealous and they would like to destroy you for your success? Mm. And they chose the former. They said, no, 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 no. We're a beacon of freedom. People, 20% of our population is Arab. Uh, half of those are Muslims. They have a higher standard of living of anywhere except the Gulf. They have more freedom than any Arab country. They vote. They form political parties. They hold office. Women have absolutely guaranteed. And you would want to say, and you think that means they're not going to be critical and identify with Gaza. So there was an unreality. And that unreality was not top down, it was dispersed through the whole society. Mm -hmm. You talk to a taxi cab driver, you talk to an IDF general, you talk to a politician, left or right, they all were under the impression they were at the end of history. Mm -hmm. And they had 
they were just about ready to go into a new page of coexistence. Mm. And if you had said in July when I was there, if you had said to them, wait a minute, the people that you were letting in from Gaza are systematically spying every kibbutz they work at. They're taking blueprints on their cell phones. They're planning to have cells that come back in a few months and slaughter women and children and mutilate them. They would think you're crazy. Mm. If you said the Iran deal may be off, but Iran is going to push Hamas and give them rockets and kill you. And you couldn't, you couldn't explain that to them. Mm. And so there was a collective naivete about, and now I don't, I think if you talk to Israelis, they'll say, you know what? All that was nice. We thought we would have a two state coexistence. And now we realize they hate us, not because we're Israelis, because we're Jews and they're chanting from the river to the sea everywhere, meaning they want to destroy us and Western intellectuals and Middle East immigrants and students are chanting the same thing. And we're going to be destroyed unless we go back to a deterrent garrison mindset. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say that, but that's the only thing that's going to save them. Mm -hmm. And here in the United States, there's a, a very strange phenomenon. The bi-coastal elite from San Diego to Berkeley and from Boston to Miami and the unit, that's where the financial centers are, the military, I mean, the uh, universities, uh, Silicon Valley, the high tech, the elites, the blue states. And they're mostly in the Democratic Party. They're very, very anti-Israel. And that's shocking people mm. because that was not true 30 years ago. I don't mean anti-Israel in the sense they, they, they favor the Palestinians. I'm talking about cheering on the death squads that went in there. Mm. And that's happened at universities. We had a professor where I work take take Jewish students and put them in one corner of the room and say, how do you like that? And that's happening. And in, in the, the large geographical areas of the inland, that's red state, the working classes, and to a degree of professionals, the people who are in farming, trucking, oil and gas, mining, the muscles of the country, mm. they are rapidly pro-Israel. Amen. And 99% of them are not Jewish, but they admire a constitutional government. They admire a free people. They, they admire a defiant, independent country that defends itself. Mm. And these two groups now are fighting over Israel throughout the United States. But it's not just Democrats versus conservatives or left-wing students versus truck drivers. It's more... It's more... Uh, what is the future of the United States? Do you want to be a tribal society that justifies any means necessary by your supposed superior ends? Or do you want to support a constitutional government? Mm. And uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe and in the West. And I'll just conclude by saying, when you see somebody who is pro-Hamas in the United States and pro-Ukrainian, mm. You ask them a question, you say, Zelensky has su suspended martial law and he hasn't had an election in three years, mm. two years. Mm. If Netanyahu did that, would that be okay? No, it's mm. okay for Zelensky. Mm. You said that we have to worry about Iran. We can't heighten tensions. Iran has no bomb yet. You said, don't worry about Russia. They have 7,000 nuclear weapons. We don't want to worry about them. Mm. 
you said the Ukrainian war is not just about territory, has nothing to do with territory, it's about a larger agenda. But you said Israel is just about just about territory. It's not about destroying Israel's larger agenda. I could go on, mm. but the disconnect between the attitude toward Ukraine, the Ukraine, and I support defending the Ukrainian, but it's such a hypocritical paradox between what they say about Ukraine and what they say about Israel. And so that begs the question, why? Mm. And I think it's, it's pretty much that Israel is a Jewish state mm. and there's endemic anti-Semitism in the West. There always has been. Mm. And so if somebody can tell me, Victor, there's no difference. My, my support for Ukraine is exactly how I support Israel. I don't like constitutional states attacked by tyrannies. I don't like them invaded. I don't like collateral damage. If the Israelis, if you say to a, you, a Ukrainian war, well, you knocked out a Russian-controlled bridge, you knocked out a Russian-controlled road, you took down a headquarters of the Russian Navy with apartment buildings around, were you worried about collateral damage? No, they asked for it. Mm. And if you say, well, the Israelis actually call people up. No, they're war criminal. Mm. If And I can't, for the life of me, figure that out. I, I really can't. And if you say to a supporter of the Ukraine war, how are you going to beat the Russians? Mm. Well, we're going to have to be disproportionate. We have to give them more guns and more things, and they have to have more weapons, and then they have to get all the Russians out, and they have to go into Russia and blow up the oil and blow up the Black feet, and we're going to give them rockets, F-16, anything more. They have to have more than Russia. If you say to a supporter of Israel, they have to act disproportionately to recreate it. They have to go in and remind Hamas the wages of their aggression. They'll say, oh, my God, that's that's not right. That's a cycle of violence. We have to be proportionate. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I get exasperated with that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Americans are getting very tired of it. I believe that's so. Why George, George, just to finish, that's why Joe Biden last night was careful to tie Ukrainian aid with Israel aid because he knew they were inconsistent or at least they were there were paradoxes and he didn't want those to occur because he couldn't answer those questions. Surely, Professor, again, he has a lot more questions that he couldn't answer. But anyway, let's go back to um, your book. Final question, very briefly, yeah. Professor. Your book is called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive... Elites, tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America. But again, to us, America is still a strong, promising country. Now, Professor, briefly, from your perspective, for the younger generations, how should we continue to guide them and teach them to believe that, listen, democracy stays, constitutional rights stay, and also, most importantly, we need to continue to fight for what's right, and not let the and not allow the leftist agenda continue to ruin what the founding fathers built years ago. So again, Professor, yeah. from your perspective, how do you think we can do that, especially towards the youth? Well, I think everybody who believes what you just said has been sort of retiring, and mm. they think they've gone into a monastery of their minds. So they. When you talked like that, they say, you know what? I don't want to fight it. I don't want to watch a Hollywood movie. Mm. I haven't watched an NBA game in a year. I don't even know what the Oscars are. I don't want to be lectured by Oscars. I don't want to send any of my kids to Harvard or Stanford. I know they're going to be indoctrinated. 
I, when I see somebody with Antifa or BLM on TV, I just turn the TV off. That's not enough. Or mm. if I'm here in California, I'm going to move to Tennessee or Wyoming or Montana mm. or Utah. So I think what's happened, people thought that they could retire from the popular culture. And when they did that, they lost their political clout or mm. influence. And I think now, and you're going to see in the next election, there are people who say, I'm going to go down to the polls and I'm going to just sit there and watch and make sure. I'm going to try to make sure that we restore election day where you actually go vote and you don't mail in without authenticity. I'm going to give to a candidate. I'm going to get out my grandmother to vote. I see it and that's hopeful. And every society goes through warps and woofs and yin and yang and we have so much resiliency in this country because we're 330 million people. We have the highest standard of living we are a multiracial society. We have the best constant. We're the oldest democracy in the world. We're the strongest ag sector. We have the most oil and gas if we'll use it. We have the largest military. Until recently, and I think still recently, we, and at least in science and engineering and math that count, we have the highest uh, and most rigorous universities. So there's a lot of uh, rot in our country that we can afford to, but that's not a reason to get complacent. Mm. So we have to go back and reinvest and we need to be all powerful. Mm. So the only thing that's going to deter China from bullying or invading Taiwan or Japan is a, a, a much stronger economy that doesn't have this debt, a much stronger military mm. and a much better educated citizenry that knows what's going on. Mm. And I think that's what we're working on. And I, I'm hopeful that we can do that. And the Americans, to the degree that our allies, uh, they have to rely on us. Mm. So you don't want to have an ally get out on a branch and then saw him off. You don't tell the Israelis, we're here for you. And then when Hezbollah or Hamas comes there, we're not there. Mm. You don't tell the, the Taiwanese, you have to build up your weapons. You have to build up, you have to be very vigilant all the time. And then when you call us and say, well, there's a 500 ships in the South China Sea and they're headed our way, you say, well, that's your problem. Mm. And you can't do that. You can't encourage people to be partners of the United States unless you're willing to guarantee that you're going to be there for them. Mm. And that's what I'm most worried about because it seems like uh, we're telling Israel, on one hand, here's some weapons, but on the other hand, you can't you do this and you can't do that. And don't get too angry about what happened to you. And we're going to we're going to lower all the flags at our embassy and in, in honor of the hospital strike that never happened. Uh, and so it's we're sending mixed neck messages. And you can't do that if you're a great power.